It's Tuesday, August 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Researchers in Hong Kong have confirmed the first case of COVID-19 reinfection. The man, who was 33 years old, first had the coronavirus in late March and contracted the virus again in August while traveling in Europe. One thing to note, the second time around, the man did not have any symptoms. Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News, joins us for what to know about the first COVID reinfection. Next, the FDA has issued an emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma as a coronavirus treatment. Some 70,000 Americans have already received blood plasma as part of their treatment. While the president has said that the treatment is very safe and effective, the FDA did not go that far because there has not been any controlled clinical trials. Sarah Overmall, healthcare reporter at Politico, joins us for more. Finally, as the Republican National Convention gets underway, there will be no new party platform. Instead, the GOP will fully support President Trump's agenda. The Trump campaign released a 49-point wish list for his second term, including developing a vaccine by the end of 2020, creating 10 million jobs in 10 months, and fully funding and hiring more police. Elena Treen, White House reporter at Axios, joins us for Trump's second term agenda. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The virus he had in March, his doctors sort of sequenced the genetics of the virus then, and they did the same with the second infection. And those viruses were slightly different. It's obviously the same virus, but like there were some slight mutations. Joining us now is Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks so much. Researchers in Hong Kong on Monday reported the first confirmed case of COVID-19 reinfection. It was a 33-year-old man who got it again. And one of the ongoing questions throughout this whole pandemic is, once you have had it, for how long are you immune to it? Are you immune forever? A lot of people were saying, well, it could be like other common cold coronaviruses. You can get it seasonally, things like that. So in this case, Tell us a little bit more about it. It seemed he got it at the end of March, early April, and then four and a half months later, he got it again. So tell us a little bit about this guy. As you said, he's a 33-year-old man who lives in Hong Kong and got it in Hong Kong in March when it was sort of um, their epidemic was spiking, uh, appeared to have totally recovered and had sort of classic mild to moderate symptoms of fever, cough, and the like. And then he had been traveling in Europe in August and four and a half months later. And as he was coming home to Hong Kong, they, as part of a screening program at the airport, just did a saliva sample. And that came back as positive for the virus. And there had been sort of scattered reports of reinfection before. And some of them have been dismissed as sort of flukes with testing. But what the evidence that this really does appear to be a case of reinfection in this case is because the virus he had in March his doctors sort of sequenced the genetics of the virus then, and they did the same with the second infection. And those viruses were slightly different. It's obviously the same virus, but like there were some slight mutations. And that indicates that the infections weren't actually related to each other. So that's how they were able to establish that it was the second case. And they've been following the sequence of the genome of the virus for a long time. What they were saying, too, is on the West Coast of the United States, a lot of those seem to be coming from China and other Asian countries. And then on the East Coast, when New York had their outbreak, a lot of that virus was coming out of Europe. So this guy, obviously, he had the first case in Hong Kong. And then I guess he was traveling through Spain and London on his way back to Hong Kong. And that's how he got it. But the interesting thing about this, too, is that the second case was milder than the first time around. He had almost no symptoms the second time around. And at least they're saying that 
if your body does go through it, you do get some type of immunity protection. Maybe you can't fend it off completely, but at least it's not as strong the second time around. Yeah. So I think when this report came out today, sort of the initial reaction was like, uh oh, we had hoped immunity may last longer than four and a half months. And that might still be the case. Like this is potentially an outlier. And for most of us, if we have COVID-19 and recover, we'll be protected from a second infection for longer. It sort of appears that he was sort of a rare person and that he did not amount a very good immune response after the first infection. Sort of studies are showing that most people do mount a pretty good immune response. So this could be an outlier in terms of the timing. But what scientists were sort of hardened to see is that this guy actually had no symptoms on his second infection and was really only detected because of that airport screening program. And so that's to suggest that like maybe his whatever immune response he did generate wasn't strong enough to totally prevent the infection, but it still offered some sort of protection so he didn't get really sick. And that's kind of been one of the hypotheses out there is that if and when reinfections do start happening more broadly, because it should ha- happen eventually, hopefully the plan will be that people get less sick, which is important, obviously, not only for that individual, but in terms of health system capacity and the like. But it's also unclear still if this guy is as infectious as he may have been during that primary infection. Yeah, that would be the big question and almost impossible to tell, right? And they're not going to actually put him out there and get other people infected or anything. So yeah, how infectious was he the second time around if the body already knew the virus was already fighting it so much so that He didn't have any symptoms this time around. So that's a a big lingering question. But we keep talking about other coronaviruses that cause the common cold. People usually are susceptible after a year or maybe a little less. When SARS and MERS came around, the immunity for those lasted a few years. So we kind of always had this in the back of our heads that people were probably going to be able to get COVID a second time around. And health experts say that this is important to know, though, with this person that got the second infection, that even if people have got it, they should still get vaccinated when it becomes available. They should still wear their masks and still do their social distancing just to help limit the spread in case they do get it again and they might be asymptomatic. You know, there's going to be quite a demand for vaccine. And so there's been some talk about maybe people who've recovered should be closer to the back of the line. I don't know if, if that's going to be a serious proposal or not, but this does go to show that this is like other respiratory viruses. Like it just does not seem like we're going to have sort of sterilizing immunity, which means immunity for like a complete and complete protection for a long time, which happens with things like measles, for example. So there was always a thought that people would start to get reinfected. And that's, you know, sort of has implications for vaccine development as well, because the thinking with the vaccines that are making progress now is they won't provide lifelong immunity. So it might have to be something that we need a boost for maybe every year, maybe every two years. I mean, that remains to be determined. But People have been sort of thinking that this is something we're going to need to kind of keep up with going forward. Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. We're also on the brink of a vaccine for the probably the fastest we've seen in the history of modern medicine, where you can literally six months after a virus started, potentially have a vaccine. Joining us now is Sarah Overmall, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Over the weekend, the Food and Drug Administration issued an emergency authorization for blood plasma, or they also call it convalescent plasma, as a coronavirus treatment. Now, this has been around for some time now, and I guess through the Mayo Clinic, there are a bunch of patients I think maybe about 70,000 Americans that have already received this convalescent plasma as a treatment. But now 
the FDA has opened it up a little bit more. Sarah, tell us a little bit about convalescent plasma and how effective it is right now. So as you said, it's been around for years and been used for a multitude of viruses. And 70,000 people have been treated through an expanded access program at Mayo Clinic. So what we can tell from those two things is that it's safe. But the outstanding question right now is how effective it is, especially for the coronavirus. So with the emergency use authorization on Sunday, the FDA is saying that doctors can administer this plasma, which essentially is a recovered patient's blood to sick patients because the recovered patient in their plasma has antibodies that help fight the virus. They can administer that plasma to hospitalized patients. One of the concerns that people have about doing this EUA before we know that it is actually effective is that when you have an EUA, you don't have to continue logging data. So whereas Mayo Clinic was logging all this data, now we could have people getting plasma where it is effective or where it's not effective, and it's going to be harder to know what that is is and what's happening for people. And up until this point, with regards to coronavirus at least, it hasn't gone through the full clinical trial, the randomized testing that they usually do with people. So that's kind of why we don't know exactly how effective it could be. The president on Sunday when he announced it said that it's safe and very effective, so a little contradictory there. But as you mentioned, it's been given to so many people, we at least know that it's generally safe. Yes, but the, quote, very effective part is not proven yet. And notably, Trump's health officials who were on stage with him, FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn and the health secretary, Alex Azar, didn't push back on him saying that, which I thought was very notable because they're the people who are supposed to lay out the limits here. It is safe, but we don't know how effective it is. And we're not going to know that until we have randomized trials, which are considered the gold standard because they eliminate other factors that could be helping or harming someone. The president likes to paint a pretty rosy picture when it comes to these types of things, as we we're just talking about with the convalescent plasma or even with a vaccine that we're hoping could come by the end of the year, most likely the beginning of next year, especially when it comes to actually distributing it to millions of Americans. But the president seems to say, hey, we might have it before the end of the year, maybe by election time. Stephen Hahn, he's the FDA commissioner. He's been out there trying to calm people down, at least, because there's a lot of people that have distrust of vaccines, distrust of the government as well. So Stephen Hahn has been out there trying to calm people down about it, at least, and try to play up the effectiveness, saying we're not going to put anything out there until we know it's completely safe and effective. Exactly. And it remains to be seen whether that's going to resonate with people, because while he has started trying to reassure people about that transparency and about the agency's commitment to science rather than politics. So far, that has largely been confined to medical journals, which the average American doesn't read. And so he's not really, you know, on the airwaves, on the primetime television shows, telling people this is going to be safe and here is why it is going to be safe. Meanwhile, the president is out there every day saying we're going to have a vaccine by the end of the year. And the timelines just don't match up there. We could have a vaccine candidate that is promising by the end of the year, but a lot of people hear him say that And what they hear is, I am going to get a vaccine by the end of the year. And what is largely expected from government officials, from health experts, is that wide availability of a shot is not going to be a real thing until 2021 spring. But of course, by that time, the presidential election will be over. So the politics that are being infused into this are really fueling vaccine distrust that has already been there among a lot of Americans anyway, but is being exacerbated right now because of all the rhetoric that's being discussed around the COVID vaccines in particular. 
It is reassuring to me that we're hearing from these drug companies and the FDA talking about going through all these stage three trials, 30,000 people in each study for each vaccine candidate. And they're really trying to do their due diligence, you know, especially when you hear Russia and Vladimir Putin say, hey, we have a vaccine. We're already going to start using it. And we haven't done all those clinical trials. So at least on this side of things, we're trying to do it right. We're trying to make sure it's safe and effective for the vast amount of people so that we do have confidence in our medical system, in our vaccines, and in the government as well with it. Absolutely. And I think it is really important to stress that the system itself is not changing. The pharmaceutical companies are pushing back on any idea that their timelines are going to be sped up to an irresponsible level. There's career people at FDA and across the government, people like Anthony Fauci, who've been there for decades and know exactly how all of this works. And they're not going to rubber stamp a vaccine that does not have the data to support it. So I don't want people to worry that something is going to be publicly available that is not safe or that is not effective. But I think that there needs to be a level of realism injected where it might not be a cure-all right away, that the first vaccine might not be the thing that returns us to normal, and that the first vaccine might not be available to you when the president is saying it's going to be available to you. And I think those are the things that people need to understand. Sarah Overmall, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. They're using COVID to defraud the American people, all of our people, of a fair and free election. Here, here. We can't do that. Joining us now is Elena Treen, White House reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Elena. Thanks for having me on. The RNC is getting underway. We're going to be hearing a lot of the president. He's slated to speak in some form or fashion throughout all four days leading up until Thursday. But one of the interesting things, there's not going to be a new party platform. Instead, the Republican Party is just going to support the Trump agenda. But we did kind of get maybe a wish list, you can call it, for President Trump's second term, just things that he wants to get done. But it seems like a lot of the things that he wants to accomplish this time around, as with the last time, really, it needs a lot of congressional buy-in. He's, he's not going to be able to do everything by executive order. It needs Congress to pass laws and make these things happen. But Elena, tell us what we know about this uh, second term agenda that they want to accomplish. So you use the word wish list, and that's exactly what I think a lot of critics of this agenda are calling it, because a lot of it, like you said, yes, Congress would have to pass a lot of these things. And um, it doesn't really get into the specifics of how the president would do this. But it lays out in 49 bullet points, 10 broader areas of what the president and the campaign is promising he will deliver in a second term. The first is about health care and the coronavirus, in addition to some things we've heard from him throughout his time being in office already about lowering prescription drug prices and insurance premiums and ending surprise billing. But one thing that really stuck out in that section is that the campaign promised to develop a vaccine by the end of 2020. A lot of health experts say that's kind of an optimistic timeline, but it's something that now is a core part of their agenda. And so they'll be pushing this throughout this week during the Republican National Convention. It also touches on what he wants to see for jobs. There's a push to create 10 million new jobs in 10 months, including 1 million new small businesses. One of my business colleagues noted that even if the president were able to achieve that goal, the U.S. would still be well under where they were in February prior to the coronavirus pandemic. On education, what do they plan on doing on education? Because it's such a big topic of discussion right now with 
kids going back to school, how to do it online, hybrid, in person. What did they say about that? The education section of the platform was very limited, I think I would say. The main bullet point of that was to provide school choice to every child in America, which is a big thing. The president has long directed his education department and secretary, Betsy DeVos, to promote and amplify school choice within America. So that's really the key of their education platform here. And again, I think that it's worth noting that this isn't a very detailed platform. It's just bullets within these broader umbrellas of topics, including education. So when they say provide school choice to every child in America, we don't know how he intends to do it. And I've talked to some officials today that said they are looking at rolling out some more detailed descriptions of this agenda later on. But for now, it's a very almost vague and broad bulleted list. We know that there was a lot of calls to defund the police after the killing of George Floyd. Their bullet points here said that he's going to defend our police, not defund the police. It's consistent with what the president's messaging on this has been for several weeks now. And kind of in a way, since the George Floyd protest, he's really turned to being that law and order president and trying to show that he's going to lift up law enforcement. And so part of what goes into that section was about increasing criminal penalties for assault on police officers and also a push to fully fund and hire more police and law enforcement officers, which is, of course, quite opposite of the defund the police movement. They also discuss ending cashless bail and bringing what the campaign says is violent extremist groups like Antifa to justice. What about immigration? That's long been one of the president's top priorities. And I'm not hearing too much talk of things about building the wall anymore. But he's done a lot throughout his administration so far on immigration. I mean, basically halting the asylum system. He's done a Mm -hmm. lot already there. What do they plan for a second term? He's sticking with his hardline immigration stance that his administration has. They note that they want to block undocumented immigrants from becoming eligible for welfare and health care benefits. That's kind of a play we saw during one of the early Democratic debates among the different challengers for the Democratic presidential nomination, raising their hand about providing welfare and health care to undocumented immigrants. This is a direct contrast with that. They also discuss mandatory deportation for non-citizen gang members and ending sanctuary cities, as well as requiring new immigrants to support themselves financially. And there's definitely a lot of them that we're not going to be able to go through. Finally, I just wanted to ask mm-hmm. about China, because the president has made China another a central focus of his his tenure as well, fighting with them over trade. You know, there's this big TikTok battle going on right now as well. What do they want to do with regards to China? So with China, it's all about bringing jobs back to America and pulling them, specifically manufacturing jobs, away from China and back to the U.S. So the administration promises to create tax credits for companies that shift their operations back to the United States from China. They also said that they will create no federal contracts for companies who outsource to China, as well as they would allow expensing deductions for essential industries like pharmaceuticals and robotics that bring their manufacturing back to the U.S. So all about jobs when it relates to China here. Elena Treen, White House reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.